Grab your Bibles with me, if you will, as you find your seat, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Continue our sermon series through John's Gospel. Very thankful for the opportunity to to be on this journey with you, to get to preach God's Word. We're in the final stretches, as we are in verse 38 of chapter 18, of Jesus' trials. He has stood before the Jewish leadership throughout the night and now stands before Pilate, who governs that state. Last week, we saw Pilate and Jesus talk about kingdom authority, about truth. And we concluded with verse 38, and I want to pick up where we left off and then connect it with the next part of verse 38. Today, it says in John 18, 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? This was another sign of Pilate's depraved nature. He he was not spiritually discerned. He was not reborn with saving faith. And so he didn't know what truth was, as we studied last week pretty thoroughly. He didn't realize that truth was standing before him. Jesus is truth. And it's a perfect table setter for what we will study today. And that the scriptures are clear that those who are outside of new birth in Jesus Christ are dead in sin. Dead, not sick, not lost, with a way to find their way back. Dead. Completely shut off from spiritual life. Dead in sin. Paul describes our state this way, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Another way to understand the state of mankind apart from Christ is the doctrine of inherited sin or original sin. Because of the actions of our federal head, Adam, we all are born sinners with a sin nature. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That we are sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Because that's who I am at conception, at birth, a sinner. Sin nature. King David said this well in Psalm 51, 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What this means is that all mankind is guilty except the one not conceived of man and woman, but of God. Jesus is the only one not born guilty, for Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit and never sinned. This is why Pilate comes to the right conclusion that he does. Look with me at the rest of verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Why does he find no guilt in Jesus? Because there is no guilt in Jesus. Peter later said it this way, 1 Peter 2:22 He committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth 
Here Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 9, a prophecy from long ago that's now been fulfilled in Christ, the promised Messiah. God in flesh came and lived a life free of sin. See the testimony of this all throughout the Scriptures. In two most famous passages we see in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God took on flesh. Church, Jesus experienced in his flesh in his human nature, real pain, struggle. All these things, we're going to see that lived out in the most extreme way in today's text. And he faced temptation, great temptation. I would argue greater temptation than any of us have ever faced. And yet, without sin. And the most important, famous, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He knew no sin, but to take on sin that we, so that we, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' sinless life was an essential reality of his life on earth so that he could be our full and right substitute unto our salvation. This truth changes everything for us. Jesus was sinless. No imperfections. This is the essential criteria for the one who would be the final and sure and complete sacrifice for the sins of God's people. In this, Jesus is referred to as the spotless lamb throughout the text. God's right requirement for a substitute for sin was one without blemish, without spot, but not just on the outside in appearance, but through and through. This is why you and I have no hope apart from Christ. We cannot qualify. We cannot convince holy God that we are good enough. We're not spotless. Even if somehow you can make yourself look that great on the outside, God knows you through and through and knows that you're not. We are stained. We are dead in sin. We need a lamb. You cannot be the lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No man can do this but the God-man, Jesus Christ. No man walked the earth in total obedience and righteousness other than Christ himself. So this is what makes Pilate's declaration in this critical hour so important. He's... He's under great scrutiny and judgment. He's declared by the highest governor in the land, he's not guilty. Pilate's had his inspection of Jesus, finds nothing wrong. The other Gospels tells us that he, he sends Jesus to King Herod, 
He's so frustrated. He'd send him to King Herod. King Herod sends him back to Pilate. Nothing wrong. Luke 23's account speaks to this. Verse 13 through 16. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, I behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate's verdict is clear. He's not guilty of the death sentence that the Jewish leaders deemed him worthy of. But in Luke's account, we read on that the crowd shouted back at Pilate a request to have Pilate release another in Jesus' place. Luke 23, 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. The Jewish leaders and their followers are now desperate. They are scrambling in the moment. Why? Because the one guy that can give Jesus the verdict they want him to have, the public execution that they want him to have, just declared pretty convincingly, he's not guilty. So I'm not going to sentence him to that, to that death. And so these, these leaders are going, they're scrambling, they're desperate. Their long orchestrated plans about to crumble right before them. And remember, a ruling of the state is what must happen for the level of public execution that they want for Jesus to happen. So they stir the crowd and convince them to start yelling to release to them instead a man by the name of Barabbas in Jesus' place. This brings us back to chapter 18, verse 39, the next verse. We have a little better context. But you, Pilate says, have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? The Jewish authorities and their followers don't want Jesus released, and Pilate doesn't want a riot, so he plays into their political hand, the tradition that the governor would release or pardon a guilty prisoner this time is brought up with hopes they could get someone else and not Jesus released. They're scrambling. Pilate's reference to Jesus here as the king of the Jews is not a compliment or a term of respect, but one of mockery. He's making fun of the Jewish people and their proclaimed king. This is his way of denouncing He's not really a king at all. As we've seen in the last few sermons, Jesus is bound. He's been beaten. He, Pilate is just struggling with his whole demeanor and presence. He's not calling any kind of authority to change the situation. Pilate's lacking real discernment for the authority that Jesus really has and the kingdom he represents. So he has no due respect for Jesus as the Son of God and the king that he is. The king who reigns over all the kings. The king of kings. The reality of Pilate and the angry crowds in their sin is that that, that sin is very much in display, on display at this moment. And so look at their reply. 
John 18, 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Because Pilate says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. It says they cried out. That means they shouted. They're shouting. They shouted to be clear. They shouted to be heard. They shouted to get what they wanted. When your sin wells up in you and you're upset, what do you do? You start yelling. You, you, you want to get your way. You're frustrated. It's not happening. So you get loud. And that's what they're doing. They're shouting. And what do they want most? From from the most authoritative man in the region? They want him to put a convicted criminal back in their neighborhood so that they could be rid of Jesus. Pilate, he must have been shocked to hear them request a known notorious criminal to be released and not Jesus. It's like Because to Pilate, Jesus doesn't... It's simple. You take Jesus back. And you can see that in Pilate's kind of inference when he, when he says, surely you want the king of the Jews, right? In verse 39. But the Jewish leaders and their followers revealed themselves as worse than Pilate in demanding what he least expected, thirsting for the blood of their prey. They call for Barabbas to be released in Jesus' place so that Jesus could be condemned. Wow. I mean, the the influence of the the Judaizers, of the Jewish leaders over their, their cronies, and it just it's see for what it is. It's influential. Yeah. Might as well have it close. Thank you. Look with me at the second part of verse 40. Now Barabbas was a robber. John tells us that Barabbas is a rob- robber. He gives he gives commentary here. The Greek word used is better translated one who seizes plunder. Luke's gospel expands on his guilty record saying Barabbas is according to Luke 23, 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. An insurrectionist is someone who commits violent uprising against an authority or a government and takes what he wants. So he's a criminal. But he's more than just a thief. You know, you dig into that text a little more, you understand he's not just a guy who got caught robbing someone's house. He's a problem. He's an instigator. And did you notice the further clarity that he's a murderer? Barabbas' guilt 
is known by the community, and it's been proven. He's in jail. He's deserving the death for his crimes. He's on his way to execution. He deserves his incarceration and his coming penalty. On the other hand, Jesus, who's already been declared innocent, doesn't deserve any of the treatment he has received or further punishment, but the influencers stir the crowd to call for the proven criminal to be released and to condemn the one who is proven not guilty. See how deep man's sin runs. See the sin of mankind on display here. Sinful man will do just about anything to get anything that sinful hunger wants. Why does a man hit his wife? Sin. Why does an employee steal from the company that it graciously employs them? Sin. Why does a gunman murder 28 people in a small town church? Sin. And we see it in a politically motivated crowd to get rid of an opponent to their cause. Not a threat to their, but to their cause, to their position. They want them murdered. Turn with me to chapter 19 and let's see how Pilate responds. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. John gives us a real simple narrative here. When we look at the rest of the Synoptic Gospels, we get some more clarity. The punishment that Pilate said he would give Jesus, remember the text I read a moment ago, for kind of his trouble, maybe to help settle the crowd, make an example of Jesus, is flogging. But again, here's how deep man's sin runs in that Jesus deserves nothing, and yet flogging is a sentence. Flogging, also called scourging. And what you have to understand with flogging or scourging in this day is there, is there are some tears to it, depending on the crime, depending on the moment, depending on who was doing it. It's understood that Jesus, in this whole course of events, was potentially flogged twice, once potentially in the more introductory fashion, and then another in the worst way. I'll cover both here for the sake of, of our movement through the text. The, the, the first simple application is, is what you picture when you imagine someone being whipped on their bare back. The, the scars that that leaves for a lifetime is, is really because of like almost a burning effect of the skin. And many times it's so harsh it draws blood. You can maybe picture in movies where you've seen a slave or a guilty man wincing as the leather burns across the back. But the second time, the worst application of the scourging that Jesus took on 
was the harshest way the Romans did this for the worst of criminals on their way to death penalty. They would strip a man naked. Part of public humiliation, mostly to expose all of his skin. They would shackle his arms often above his head. The tool they used in this level of scourging was called a cat of nine tails. Gruesome-looking weapon. You see pictures of it. It has a firm handle. Attached to it are many leather strips. The ends of some of those leather strips are embedded pieces of like like metal balls. And then as the whip would hit the back, those metal balls would act as like tenderizer, like when you tenderize meat. And within the strips were pieces of either bone or metal to act as, as teeth, so that as the whip in its harshness was applied, it would grab and sink its teeth in. Just like when you set a hook when you're fishing, the executioner would get good at doing that and setting the teeth and then with all of his force and might, rip it from the body. Grip it with both hands and just with everything he's got, tear it away. For the Jews, there is a maximum of 40 lashes that one could endure. For the Romans, at this level, no such mercy was given This process would repeat again and again with lashes to the back, the chest, the loins, the the bowels, and even the face. Many times what this would do would be to really expose the innards of the body. You could see into one's body. The Isaiah... The prophet Isaiah declared this would happen, saying hundreds of years before that the Messiah, Jesus, would be marred beyond human likeness. It's why the portrayals you see of people painting Jesus on the cross or on a, a crucifix with Jesus exposed, not only is he covered, which wouldn't have been the case, but he's, he's, he's way too together. He was disfigured beyond recommend, marred beyond human likeness. Think of the depth of that description. The punishment from this scourging would many times be so severe the person would faint or even just die to unbelievable pain and torture. And if that wasn't already enough, look at verse 2 and 3. They did more. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and then struck him with their hands. Matthew's account says it like this in Matthew 27, 27 through 30. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
and they spit on him and took the reed and then struck him on the head. To give you a visual of this, the battalion, a battalion, remember, is about four to 600 soldiers. An army gathered to watch the beating of Mary's child. God in flesh. Imagine with me for a moment what his flesh has gone through just in this last 24 hours. He's been up all night. His flesh is exhausted. He's been beaten throughout the night. And now scourged to the point of death. Naked, bloodied, unrecognizable. And they're not done with him. The crown of thorns, the Achimuth crown, we don't have specific knowledge of the plant they used, but surely it was not the, the rose bush thorn that we might think of, for that would not be able to pierce the head. And thorn strong enough to, to be pressed into the head without breaking. And further mockery. And, and, and do you really remember how much your head bleeds? I mean, your head bleeds. Knocked a little part of my head open when I was young, playing basketball in my backyard, and I was just covered in blood. Just a little part of my head. In further mockery, they put a robe on him, mocking him as king. But worse than that, physically, it served as a, as a bandage or gauze. Can you imagine his exposed body gushing blood, enormous wounds now wrapped in this soft cloth, this purple robe, which means eventually then when they ripped it back from his body, tearing a large band-aid or something from a goopy wound would have nothing in comparison. And they're mocking him. They're kneeling before him. They're making fun of him. Hail the king, spitting on him. Striking him in the head with a reed, a staff made with a plant. Driving those thorns all the deeper. No, no typical human would survive this. Would collapse, would die. And if you're thinking why, if in being overwhelmed by it and the, and the gruesome and the depth and, and the permissiveness of it, why? Why so harsh? Some people have even spoken of hell this way. A good God sending people to eternal torment. Like, it's why it feels so harsh. But you have to see in the depth of the punishment, the depth of the crime. But that's when you go, but he didn't do any crime. He committed no sin. But our crime, our sin, our lifetime of treason against the holy God is due.
Many reject the depth of the punishment of Jesus because they don't rightly view the guilt of the ones he's taking the punishment for. And if you see, if you don't see your sin worthy of deep and true and lasting punishment, I fear you don't rightly see your sin. And and for many of you, that is the step you need to take to really fully get all of you around the gospel is you have to have that right view of the depth of your sin that you're just utterly, completely desperate for God. And Christ work in your place. Praise God for the incarnation. What's the incarnation? God in flesh. God put on flesh. Jesus put on flesh. And then was spotless in how he lived and thought and acted so that his spotless flesh, his life, could be the atonement for mine. For without that perfect spotless lamb, I, we have no hope. No hope. The mockery and sinful abuse continues with public humiliation. Look at verse 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Three times, Pilate clearly says, I find no guilt in him. And yet he has him flogged. He's considering exchanging him for a notorious criminal, an insurrectionist, and he continues to appease the, the, the Jewish leaders around him. It is amazing what political posturing will do to sinful man. What sinful man will do to gain or to keep power and position is sickening. God help us all. Because we can be quick to point at politicians or point at people like Pilate and say, what a sick. But that's We do it all the time to keep or to have something we want, to lie, to justify, to manipulate so I don't lose or so I can gain. We, are, we too are prone to fear man, to covet the gain, to protect so we don't lose, sometimes at all cost, to totally sell out. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's that's the definition not of of these individuals we like to kind of say are worse of all of us. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is at enmity against God, war against him. The fleshly mind. 
And don't forget the definition of all sinful men apart from new life in Christ. Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We read that text a lot. Here's the rest of it. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace is they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The mockery continues as Pilate refers to Jesus as the man. Did you catch that? Behold the man. This is not the complimentary way that we say this. Like, oh, that guy's the man. In in the classic speech or literature context, this is said in what he means is poor fellow, poor creature. Behold this poor creature. Pilate's way of saying, this guy's nothing. He's nothing. Have you you seen enough? Let's just be done with this. This Pilate wants to be done. Look at verse 6. And when the chief priests and the officers said to him, or saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And again, the chief priests and the officers and their cronies are calling out. They're they're yelling for Jesus' crucifixion. They don't let up because they can't. They can't let up. Pilate continues to say, he's not guilty. Just be done. We're done. This is over. And they keep pressing. Pilate declares he finds no guilt in him. So they should take and crucify him themselves, he says. But he knows. He knows they can't do that. Only his authority can do that. So that remark is is showing his frustration. He's frustrated. You take him and crucify him. But listen to verse 7 and 8. Listen and then I'll explain. This is a critical part of this passage. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The most powerful guy in all the land is said to be afraid upon hearing that. Why? What just got said? The governor is responsible to uphold the local law. Death for blasphemy is indeed a law of the Jews. And this is why when Pilate hears them specify this part of their beef and connect it to him upholding the law, he's afraid. Not only because the shouting's getting louder, the situation's getting ramped up, not just because Jesus is standing there bloody head to toe, hanging on to life, But Pilate's rank and authority are now in question. 
Pilate's ranking authority is the idol of his life, like it is for many of us, apart from Christ. We cling to, here's what I did with my life. Here's how good I was at my job or my skill, my kids, my grandkids, my legacy, my family, my whatever, whatever that is. Cling to that. Lost people cling to that stuff because it's how they try to build their identity and their hope. We've all been there. But in Christ, I cling to Christ. I get to begin to loosen my grip on those things that would have failed me eventually, not offered me eternal life or true joy. But for this depraved, spiritually dead man, this is his life, his authority. It's the idol of his life. And so with that, he re-engages Jesus because he knows he's got a decision to make. And another trial or inquiry with Jesus now takes place. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus said to him, No answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? What an ironic statement for Pilate to make in the presence of Jesus. Is it not? I mean, on the horizontal, it makes a lot of sense. Pilate's the governor. I mean, underneath the authority of Caesar, who essentially is ruling the world at this moment, politically speaking, Pilate's got a lot of clout. So he's flexing his muscle right now. Do you not realize who I am, what I can do to you? But if you consider what he's saying on the vertical, on the spiritual plane, it's laughable, right? He's speaking to God in flesh. The ruler of all things. Like I've mentioned before, the one who's holding Pilate's very being together in that moment. If he only knew the power before him. And so Jesus kind of states this in his response. Look at Jesus' response in verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Two things we're dealing with here. First, Pilate has worked to make little of Jesus. Jesus' words here actually state in reality who is really little. God is the one who reigns sovereignly over all things. He is the one who has ultimately given Pilate his authority, according to Scripture. Pilate is not out to get Jesus. The second part of what is said here is that Pilate's not really out to get Jesus. He's, he's contending with all that's been put before him. The Jewish leaders are the ones who have plotted to have him murdered. So that's who he's referencing when he says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In this, Jesus flexes, but in a way that Pilate doesn't even understand, because again, he's not spiritually discerned, and therefore lacks the right view of who Jesus truly is, and once again, walks away from the conversation, convinced he's not a threat, he's not a big deal, this is all silly, I'm done, I'm done with this, and we see it, we see it in his response in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, convinced. He should be released. But 
the Jews shouted, cried out, shouted. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You see the political move they just made? Pilate is, is, is not convinced. He, he's not convicted that Jesus is guilty of what they're saying. He's worthy to be given a death sentence. So he attempts, he attempts to release him again. The crowds push back, yelling, shouting. You see the manipulation of the guys orchestrating this. If you release this man, you're not, a, you're not Caesar's friend. They put his idols, his ideology, front and center, right in Pilate's face. And who is Pilate's greatest allegiance to? Caesar. Oh, no, you didn't just go there. That's the boss. Verse 13 through 14. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Galbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Here in these couple of verses, John's giving us some context describing the scene. Jesus is placed now on the judgment seat. The final verdict is about to be given. The reference to the day of preparation of Passover is a reference to Passover week. And the day of preparation is actually the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday, the Sabbath, in that Old Covenant is celebrated on Saturday. The preparation for the Sabbath, because you couldn't work or lift a finger or walk more than 80 feet and all the other things, there's a ton of preparation you did on Friday. That preparation had begun, and there's six hours into it. That's, that's the setting kind of what's happening in the context of now the hour we find ourselves in as the verdict's about to be given. Verse, the rest of 14 through 16, he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, they shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate finally gives in to the peer pressure. Even though he's thoroughly convinced, repeatedly convinced, it's the wrong verdict. It's wrong to convict him of, of this penalty. So why? Why does he do it? Because in the end, a man bound, enslaved to sin and his flesh will serve the flesh. Will serve the flesh. He's not ruled by Christ. Not, not free from the bondage of that sin. It was in the end better for Pilate to give them what they wanted to avoid revolt, to keep his posture and his position before them. 
In the end, because of his sin, his life was more important than Jesus' life. How sadly true it is of mankind. We are a self-seeking people in our natural flesh. We will sin and sell out if it means getting what we want. Or whatever we value more than honoring God. And so we see that in Pilate, but I can't help but point out, and we have to remember, God is also at work in Pilate's ruling. Why? Because it has been God's plan from before time that Jesus would die, the Messiah would die in this way for his elect. Throughout Scripture, we see that pronounced, prophesied, spoken of, and later recounted. Most powerfully and potently in Ephesians 1, if you want to read that later. He would die in the place of undeserving sinners, die the kind of death that only the state official could render. And so Pilate did, and so it was. Pilate and the Jewish leaders are all guilty of arresting, convicting, abusing, and killing the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth. And yet, Acts 2.23 recounts it this way, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? Of God. But crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Is God guilty of sin? No. Lawless, sinful men are guilty of sin. Was it God's plan? Yes. And what a sobering verdict in all of human history is this moment. Here's Matthew's account of this moment in Matthew 27, 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So here we are. In this long journey in John's gospel, we're at the cross. Next week, we will be at the cross. But to close today, I want to do some very important business because we're reminded here that he released Barabbas in Jesus' place. The man who is known for his life of crime, who's been rendered guilty by the court and is imprisoned by the state, the one who's deserving death for the murder of others is the one who is clearly guilty and yet is the one who is released. While the man who never sinned in his entire life, who has done amazing things to bless many people, the man for whom they could find no testimony against him but lies, the man whom the ruling authority in the land could find no guilt worthy of this penalty, 
is the one condemned to the worst of criminal torture and the worst tool of execution in that day. And the testimonies of his innocence surround this situation. Recall with me for a moment, Judas declaring, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate declaring, clearly I find no guilt in him many times. Pilate saying of Herod, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate's wife, in commentary of Matthew, chapter 27, said to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. The dying thief on the cross next to Jesus said what? We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion who glorified God says, certainly this man was innocent. And those who stood with the centurion acknowledged, truly this was the Son of God. Two figures, two representatives, one guilty, Barabbas, one innocent, Jesus. One worthy of death, the other one worthy of exaltation and praise. In a society who loves things to be fair, do you understand we don't want fair in this situation? Why? Because we too are guilty proven sinners, guilty before the holy judge, lifelong lawbreakers of his commands. If not for the spotless lamb of God slaughtered in our place, we have no hope. None. Revelation 21, 8 and 27, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That should be us, because we're those people. And and if if you want to start playing with that list, going, I'm not a murderer, Man, you got to look closely at those other definitions because surely you're an idolater. Surely you struggle with sexual immorality. Surely you've lied. Remember, the measurement is not how you stack up against your fellow man. Throw that away. It's how you stack up against the holiness of God. We deserve the lake of fire and sulfur. Speaking of kingdom, God's kingdom, heaven with him, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does these detestable or false things, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there it is. We are the ones who are unclean, who deserve only wrath and punishment, but the spotless Lamb took on the sin of the sheep who had gone astray. Church, we were the ones who went astray, and He paid our debt, as we just sang, for us to be redeemed. He took on my penalty. He substituted himself in my place. I should have been crushed. I should have been chastised. I should have been beaten. I should have been hung. Luther calls it the great exchange. My death for his life. My sin for his righteousness. 
My condemnation for his salvation. My failure for his success. My defeat for his victory. As I said already, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange was God's plan from the beginning. That what is most innocent would take on the price of our guilt if we are going to ever get to take on the value of his worth and righteousness to have a reconciled relationship with God forever. You know what I can't help but wonder when I'm in this text? What did Barabbas do that night? Can you imagine? He was Dunzos, convicted, on his way, done, in prison. He stood there free, walking the streets again. He must have been shocked. They, they kept Jesus, they let me go. I can't help but wonder did he remain blind in sin? dead and cold and go back to sin and lawlessness that night? Or did he find himself to the shadow of that cross to see the grace of God to look upon the man who took his place Did God give him eyes to see and ears to hear, to believe in the gospel and be set free? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe one day in heaven we'll meet a guy named Barabbas. Maybe not. Maybe he stayed guilty in his sin. Did you know that the name Barabbas means son of the father? I wonder if he ever knew the son of the father. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? God the son who took on flesh only to have that innocent spotless flesh ripped from his body, from his bones so that you who are guilty in every way could stand before a holy God in his righteousness. Talk about the great exchange. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain in our place. Amen? Just as I wonder what Barabbas did with his days after that, I ask you today a question I hope that you don't put away quickly. What are you doing with your days since you've been set free by this great exchange? Set free from eternal damnation. Empowered with the Holy Spirit to serve Jesus and to make much of his holy name. Next week's sermon, we're at the cross. I pray you'll come, pray you invite folks. 
But I pray today you would really consider these things, what Christ has done for us as we sing this last song, prepare for the week he has before us. Let's pray. Father, we, we are blessed to have the written testimony of these things, to study, to know, to have insight. I'm blessed with the high honor to get to, to study and to, to divide your word and try to bring forth good clarity to get out of the way of it. But more than anything, Lord, we're, we're blessed to, to know you. Many, many women in this place who you've given eyes to see and ears to hear, who are transformed, who, who are growing and maturing, they're, put, they're fighting sin, they're putting away lawlessness, not making excuses, not claiming some kind of fire insurance ticket and religion, but are, are passionate to mature, to, to grow, to make much of your name. Lord, let us not just be hearers, but doers. Let us, let us act on the remembrance of what you've done. I'm tired, I'm tired, God, of hearing Brothers and sisters whom I love say, I just really feel like I don't have much of a testimony. Lord, let them see the power of their testimony that God put on flesh and was massacred in their place so they could live. What greater testimony is there than that? And we tell the world, we tell everyone around us, And for those who are here today or who are listening later to the podcast, Lord, who are yet to truly die to self, truly say, I'm all yours. I've been playing with religion, playing with routines, making a bartering system on my own, in my own way, Lord, that they would just relinquish and die to self and repent of sin and trust their lives to you. And for those who are struggling today because they've come once again face to face with some of the worst of what they have done in their lives. Or those who may be considering the gospel truth and are just going, but what becomes of me? I'm too wicked. It's too dark what I've done. That they in their trust in you would be released from that. Because it's your work in their lives, not them to earn it or change it, but your work to transform them. And they begin the humble journey of growing, maturing, pursuing your word, pursuing being discipled. So, Father, here we are. Humbly, joyfully yours. Lead us to the cross. Not just today, but every day. We die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. We love you. Hear us sing. In Jesus' name.